We're in Romans 12, uh, verses 14 through 21. I have a couple of titles that I've chosen. Uh, title one would be, You Want Me to Bless Who? And title two would be, Inviting an Enemy to a Barbecue. Okay. So we've come to know that Paul's letter to the church at Rome is it's filled with doctrine. And by doctrine, we mean theological truths that define and describe Christianity. Martin Luther was so impressed with the richness of doctrine that's in this book that he believed that the test of maturity of any believer or any church was how well they understood the book of Romans. Of course, this understanding includes both knowledge of doctrine and application of scripture. The two have to go together. Faithful obedience. Faithful obedience is the fruit of sound doctrine. As it works itself out in the life of the Christian, both in their character and in their relationships. This relationship piece was brought to mind a couple weeks ago by way of review in chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. There, Paul showed us how the love of God should affect our relationship with one another. Verses 9 through 13 command us to be devoted to one another, to devote ourselves to prayer, to contribute to the needs of the saints, and to practice hospitality. And these same type of relationship-focused commands continue in our passage today, in verses 14 through 21. In your handout, you'll notice a number of fill-ins, and it's completely up to you whether or not you fill those blanks in. The point of the handout isn't to see whether or not you can fill all those in, but it's to see really how much we have to apply in our passage, because each of those blank lines They represent a participle, a verb, or an infinitive that can be translated as a command. And so, as you can see, there's just a lot of them. And starting with verse 14, we're going to see a most challenging command to apply. Actually, it's been said that it's one of the most challenging commands that a Christian has to apply. It's what one commentator has called one of the most difficult precepts of Christianity, namely, how do you love an enemy? It's doubtful that we woke up this morning looking for a way to give honor and respect to an enemy. But today, we're going to see that we need to bless, weep, and rejoice, all in support of not only our friends, but even our frenemies and our enemies. Bible students often say that context is king, and our context, thankfully, includes Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. There, Paul urges us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, and he urges us not to conform to the world's pattern, the spirit of the age, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Of course, the world tells us that to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice Holy and acceptable to God, well, that just doesn't make any sense at all, at least from the world's perspective. But we know that it's not the world's opinion of us that really matters. No, a renewed mind is not pressured by what the world thinks. A renewed mind is too busy proving what the will of God is, that which is good 
and acceptable and perfect. So, with that in mind, let's read our passage because we do find that from God's word is where we see what it is that we need to trust. God's word is crucial. So we need to focus on our passage today, and we'll do it by reading it, by praying, and then we're going to look a little closer at each verse. So Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray, please. Father, we're just grateful, grateful for your word and the time that we get to spend now in in this passage of Scripture. We would ask, Lord, that you would help us to see you, Lord, and to realize that you see us as your children and that you've given us your spirit and through your spirit the ability to discern the truth of your word and to put it to use in our lives. So we would ask for that this morning. Father, give us, Lord, your power and your grace as we spend time in your word at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, beginning with verse 14, what comes to mind when you hear these words? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. What's your response? What do you think? What should be your response? In other words, when they speak evil of you, when they curse you, when they persecute you, and the they is anyone whom you've ever thought of when you said to yourself, How could they do that to me? So what is your reaction? What should be your response? Well, based on verse 14, a scriptural response should be to bless them and to speak of them with a heartfelt concern for their welfare. We're not to disrespect them or their name. Are you beginning to say to yourself, well, you've got to be kidding me. It's not possible. Are you thinking... There's got to be a way around the verse that states, bless them who persecute you, bless them do not curse. <laughs> I understand. That's why one of the suggested titles was, you want me to bless who? When we consider this scriptural command to bless those who persecute us, it doesn't make any natural sense. So we have to own the fact that a scriptural way of living is just totally different from what the culture of today's world and even yesterday's world would expect. What we have in verse 14 is a precedent. Jewish rabbis and Greek excuse me, Jewish rabbis and Greek philosophers simply were not teaching their followers to love their enemies and to bless those who persecute them. But Jesus was. 
This teaching of Paul echoes Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's Matthew 5, 44. I don't know what the length of your enemy list is, or even if you have such a list, but a believer is going to have enemies. No matter where Paul and the other apostles traveled, there were enemies who opposed their work. When our Lord was ministering on earth, he had enemies. Jesus warns his disciples that their worst enemies might even be found in their own household. Jesus said that people would treat them the way they treated him, and Paul wrote that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some of you may have family members who ridicule you for your faith. Others of you may come from countries where it can be dangerous to identify yourself as a Christian. Others of you may one day live and serve in such places in the future. I would say that we live in such a place now. We know that once a culture abandons the authority of God's word, then anything goes. And in this country and in others, basic biblical teachings are not just out of step, with, but they're diametrically opposed to the rest of culture. So dealing with persecution at the hands of an enemy should not be a hypothetical situation for the Christian. Let's see how Stephen, the first martyr, dealt with the reality of persecution. While Stephen, this is from Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. I'll just read it for you. While Stephen was being ridiculed and while he was being seriously injured, as his persecutors were stoning him because he testified of Jesus, he fell to his knees And he said in a loud voice just before he was killed by his enemies, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is a direct application of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and of Paul's words here in verse 14. It was the end of Stephen's life, but not the end of his legacy. The Bible tells us that as Stephen was being dragged out of the city and his persecutors were beginning to stone him, the witnesses laid their coats Where? At the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, later to be Paul, the writer of chapter 12, verse 14, had heard Stephen bless in the midst of persecution. When Paul wrote, bless them who persecute you, he knew from the example of Stephen that blessing an enemy just isn't a natural response. No, a natural response to an enemy is either one of anger and retaliation, or an alternative might be to try to ignore the enemy and just kind of hope that they go away. But what we're called to is neither of these. It's different. It's not a natural response. It's a supernatural response, a response of love and grace and forgiveness and kindness, seeking the good of those who may be trying to hurt us. Paul knew that of which he spoke. He had been the persecutor and the persecuted. Here he's challenging us to treat people better, much better than the way they've treated us. It sounds difficult because it is. We might still be saying to ourselves, I can't do it. I'm unable to bless someone who's persecuting me. But God's word has that influence on us. It always brings us to a tipping point, a point of decision What am I going to do now, and how am I going to do it? Decision point. 
You know, to obey or not to obey, that really is the question. And there may not be an easy answer, but maybe we can get some help from a hymn that we sang earlier. Let me read the lyrics. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Why we do his good will, he abides with us still, and with all who will obey and obey. Obey and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to obey and obey. But we can never prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. Hmm, where did I mess up? What word did I omit? Trust, said with authority. Thank you. Yes. And it's such a huge mistake to omit that one word. It's a mistake because of who we trust as we obey. We're trusting our God who wants us to grow in righteousness, and he wants his best for us as he wants the fruit of the Spirit to characterize our life. It's also a mistake to omit the word trust because of what we trust as we obey. We trust God's word, which tells us that we're dead to sin and that we find our identity in Christ and that we have the Holy Spirit, the helper, to help us. After all, it's the Holy Spirit who works the very nature of Jesus Christ into us as we trust and obey. This balance, this connection, this link between trusting God and obeying a command, it's essential if we're going to apply the scriptures and specifically our passage this morning. So let's keep trust and obey in mind as we now continue with verse 15, which says, We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. How are we doing in that area? Let me try a few questions. If someone gets a well-deserved promotion at work or a fellow student gets a better grade than us, do we share their joy? Suppose something good happens to a fellow believer. Are we happy? Truly happy for them. When something good happens to another person, are we free of any jealousy? Or do we have other reactions? Might we have to admit that we often envy a person's success? Might we even admit that we feel disappointment when someone does well? Outwardly, do we sometimes act indifferently when something good happens to another, as if it just doesn't matter when deep down it really does? Yet, rejoicing with those who rejoice means that we are to find delight in something when it happens to another person. We are to speak well of them. We're to give voice to that delight. You see, it's a distinctly Christian characteristic to rejoice at someone else's prosperity. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So let's go to Saul, the king of Israel, for an illustration. You see, Saul had difficulty with this. He had difficulty rejoicing with those who rejoice. I think you know the story. David was in Saul's army and beginning to build a reputation as a great warrior. One day when David came back from battle, Saul heard the people saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry and envious of David when he heard what others were saying. He couldn't help but compare himself with David. They'd credited David with his tens of thousands and me with thousands. 
What more can he get but the kingdom? This praise of David by the people caused something to snap in King Saul. From that point on, Saul was never the leader that God intended him to be. He allowed insecurity to drive his every decision. Unfortunately, insecurity can lead to the need to control people and circumstances. King Saul could not accept, much less rejoice, over David's success. Now, Saul had a choice. I mean, he could have seen David as an up-and-coming general in his army, which would have only served to make the kingdom of Israel even stronger. Instead, he looked at David as a threat. Now, let's fast forward to 1991. Baseball season, 40,000 baseball fans were on hand in the Oakland Stadium when Ricky Henderson tied Lou Brock's career stolen base record. (laughs) Lou had left baseball in 1979, but he followed Henderson's career, and he was excited about his success. Realizing that Ricky would set a new record, Brock said, I'm going to be there to cheer him on. Think I'm going to miss it? Ricky did in 12 years what it took me 19 years to accomplish. He's amazing. Now, what Lou Brock did in cheering on Ricky Henderson should be a way of life in the family of God. We should rejoice in the successes of others. Few circumstances give us better opportunity to exhibit God's grace than when someone surpasses us in an area of our own strength and reputation. This is rejoicing with those who rejoice. But we're not finished with verse 15, are we? Besides rejoicing with those who rejoice, We also need to weep with those who weep. This means that we enter into the sorrows, the hurts, the pains, the discomforts of others. And for many of us, that's foreign territory. Why? Because we've been squeezed into the pattern of this age, which includes information overload, a busy lifestyle that just doesn't leave any time for us to weep with those who weep. It's been said that as technology increases, empathy decreases. As information expands, attention spans diminish. When life speeds up, patience and empathy are just harder to come by. So we need to break this pattern and learn something from a little boy with a big heart. His next door neighbor was an older gentleman whose wife had recently died. When the youngster saw the elderly man just sitting on his porch swing crying, he wanted to help him, but he he didn't know what to say. So he walked over to the weeping man, climbed upon the swing, and just sat there. And then he began to cry. And the man, seeing the boy's tears, was greatly comforted by the tears of another. Weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice have something in common. They both take us beyond ourselves. And verse 16 takes us further down this path of one anothering, as Paul tells us to be of the same mind toward one another, which simply means don't play up to certain kinds of people and look down on others. Rather, there's to be a mutual kindness that characterizes our relationships. The verse continues, do not be haughty in mind, which means don't be high-minded. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. This verse could have anticipated the tension between Jew and Gentile in the synagogue. Jews looking down on uncircumcised Gentiles and believing Gentiles looking down on unconverted Jews. Paul knew that people place way too much emphasis on social and religious status. 
Many people use their contacts and relationships for selfish ambition. They select those people who will help them climb the social, corporate, or religious ladder. But we're not to categorize people in this way. Let's try another set of questions to see how we're doing in this area. Are we able to do humble tasks alongside others, regardless of who those others are? Do we welcome conversations with non-prestigious people? Or do we relate only to those who are going to help us get ahead? And based on the last part of, part of verse 16, are we wise in our own estimation? Walk with me, please, down memory lane. Okay, it's January of 1973. A long walk. <laughs> 46 years ago, the top pop music hit was You're So Vain by Carly Simon. Now, one line of the song was, you had one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself gavit. Gavit, G-A-V-O-T-T-E. Back in the 70s, listening to that song, I never got closure because I couldn't figure out the word that was being sung, that word gavit. And I know some of you can't fathom this, but um, we had no access to a computer or Siri or Alexa, you know, anything else that automatically filled in the blank of this missing piece of information. But for some reason, this song came to mind as... We consider this error of being wise in our own estimation. So as part of preparation for this message, a personal quest for this 46-year-old mystery was solved. Compliments of Mr. Google. A gavit, so you know, it's a type of French dance that involved high-stepping instead of sliding your feet across the floor. It has a certain pompousness about it, kind of an elitist type of movement. It's a picture of one who has quite a high opinion of himself. The point is, we can be so vain that we not only think that a song is about us, but that life is all about us. Verse 16 is challenging us to have a common commitment to enter into another's life with no regard to our status or theirs. Continuing in verse 17, we get a basic principle, another command to apply that should govern our response to an enemy or to anyone else for that matter. And that is, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. So the first part of this verse says, no evil for evil. Hmm. So no payback, huh? You might be thinking, well, what about the Old Testament? Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, we have to realize that the distinction of this verse is that it's talking about public law as a nation. We need a system of justice that retaliates against evil. In a society that's ruled by people in government that is ordered by law, yes, there needs to be a design for order. A judge, a policeman, and a soldier, they have a duty to enforce this type of law. It may be that a Christian, when in the official position of judge, policeman, or soldier, will have to implement lawful civil justice. After all, there are consequences to our actions, and the civil authorities have the authority to punish us if we commit a crime. We'll see in a couple weeks in Chapter 13 that governing authorities have a God-given role of bringing wrath on the one who practices evil. But God's design for society is not personal Vigilante law. 
And verse 17 gives us further direction in our relationships. Be it friend or enemy, respect what is right in the sight of all men. The SV puts it, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all men. In other words, when confronted by anyone, enemy or not, take the time to think about what is the honorable thing you're going to say or do. Basically, we want to live in such a way that no one can make an honest accusation against us. We want to live so that if we're going to be accused by anyone, then they have to tell a lie to do it. Now, this paves the way for verse 18. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live how? Peaceably with all men. When you read this verse, do you focus on any particular part of it? I I do. I kind of like the disclaimer, if it is possible, because there are some times when peace just isn't. For instance, if you look at the life of David, he tried to be at peace with Saul. He tried it over and over. He asked Saul, how have I wronged you? David did not take revenge and kill Saul when he had the opportunity. Rather, David did everything that he could to be at peace with Saul. But because of Saul's hostility, there was no peace. And sometimes when it comes to any relationship, that is reality. But if we like the phrase, if it is possible, then we need to embrace the next phrase as well. So far as it depends on you. This means that we should avoid provoking people whenever possible. We do not want to create an enemy, even a short-term one. Unfortunately, some believers have enemies because they lack genuine love and patience, not because they're faithful in the witness. There's a big difference between sharing in the offense of the cross and just being an offensive Christian. (laughs) I guess I have to use a personal illustration here. It was Friday, January 4th. It was uh, just, just this year, and I was driving home from work, and I was beginning to access 562 off of an entrance ramp. And as I was approaching the ramp, I could see another car also approaching. There was parallel entrance ramps at this particular location. Now, the ramp that I was on had a yield sign. It actually had three yield signs in very close proximity to one another. However, at the rate of speed I was traveling, compared to the perceived rate of speed of the other vehicle that I could also see approaching the merging point, I made the decision to not yield. With my unyielding mind, I entered our shared lane with plenty of room to spare. I don't think the other person saw it the same way. (laughs) When I actually got on 562, I couldn't help but notice that this same vehicle was very close behind me. Um, The back of my moving car, hmm, maybe I didn't have as much room as I thought. So when he passed me, and he did, quickly, he opened his window, put out his hand, and waved. And continued to wave until he was out of my view. It wasn't, just to be clear, it wasn't a mean wave or a fist in the air or anything like that. But I knew that I had offended that driver. I knew that I had not, as much as possible, tried to be at peace with this driver. My problem I failed to yield. I failed to yield with a mind that should have been renewed. I forgot our context, Romans 12, 1 and 2. But now I no longer have to worry about yielding at that location 
Just a couple of weeks ago, they replaced those three yield signs with a stop sign. (laughs) So now that stop sign reminds me to as much as possible be at peace with all men. Let's consider those times, though, when we're the driver that someone cuts off. Let's consider how to respond when we're the person that is wronged in some way. For example, this actually happened in Broken Bow, Nebraska. Okay, it was late one summer evening. Excuse me. Okay, so it's late one summer evening. A weary truck driver pulled his rig into an all-night stop. He was tired and he was hungry. The waitress had just finished serving him when three tough-looking, leather-jacketed motorcyclists of the gang type decided to give him a hard time. Not only did they verbally abuse him, one grabbed the hamburger off his plate, another took a handful of his french fries, and the third picked up his coffee and began to drink it. How did this trucker respond? Well, he calmly stood up, he picked up his check, walked to the front of the room, put the check and his money on the cash register, and went out the door. The waitress followed him to the cash register to put the money away and stood watching out the door as the big truck drove away into the night. When she returned, one of the motorcyclists said to her, well, he's not much of a man, is he? She replied, I don't know about that, but he sure isn't much of a truck driver either. On his way out of the parking lot, it looked to me like he ran over three motorcycles. (laughs) Do you kind of like how that story ends? It's a story of righteous revenge. I think we all admittedly kind of like that outcome. In this case, we feel that the truck driver had a right to retaliate, don't we? We've all heard the saying, don't get mad, get even. And that's the way most people live. Revenge is one of the most natural of human responses to being hurt or being injured, or even when confronted with a bad attitude on the part of another. We always feel that if we can get even with someone, then we're only giving them the justice that they deserve. I think there's a sense inside all of us that says wrongs should be righted, and they should be. And yet, we have to understand who is responsible for bringing justice. I think where we get into trouble is when we redefine justice in our own lives. If we find ourselves setting up shop as the one in charge, the king or the dictator in our own lives, then that's kind of an issue. If we forget that we're citizens of the kingdom of God and instead live live as the citizen of the kingdom of self, we'll totally redefine what's just and what is unjust. We'll get angry at all kinds of things because we consider them to be personal attacks against us. Our pride, our honor, our kingdom, the way we want to do things. This self will want us to settle all of our own scores. It will want us to strike out and make everything right. Why is that? Well, the truth is we're we're scared. We're scared that unless we make it right, the score will never be settled. Our definition of justice becomes what makes me upset not what makes God upset. The choice is ours. We can take matters in our own hands or remembering our context, chapter 12, 1 through 2, we can be an active citizen of the kingdom of God, meaning we can present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
proving his will, and fulfilling God's purpose, which is our sanctification, our spiritual growth, and our training in righteousness. And verse 19 is going to help us in our relationships with others. Let's read it. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The verb that's translated, leave room, it's didymai, it literally means to give place. We have to believe in the reality of God's wrath. We have to allow the biblical doctrine of God's wrath and God's judgment to find a place in our heart, in our thinking, in our living. Here, Paul is slamming the door when it comes to personal revenge. With verse 19, he's giving us a reminder that no one can avenge us quite like God. Therefore, if we want him to avenge us, we have to step out of his way. Paul wants us to give God his job description back. By refusing to take revenge, we are leaving room for God to exercise his wrath and be totally in charge of judgment. If we can do that, if we can realize that vengeance is mine, I will repay, that that's a part of God's resume and not ours, then we can avoid a hateful, judgmental attitude toward an enemy and toward anyone else. And we can be ready to apply verse 20. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Paul doesn't simply say, step aside and wait for judgment, but rather, step into the life and circumstances of the person who has hurt you. Serve your enemy's hunger and satisfy your enemy's thirst. It just might mean a Panera gift card given to an enemy. According to this verse, we need to do good to those who mistreat us. Big question, the elephant in the room, does this mean that as a Christian, we are called to be a doormat? No, not at all. Not a doormat. Rather, we're called to be an elevator or an escalator going up. We are to lift people up, maybe even into the presence of God by serving them and possibly introducing them to the love of God. This is what heaping coals of fire on their head is all about. That's why another possible title of our message is inviting an enemy to a barbecue. Inviting an enemy to a backyard barbecue is a possible application of this passage. Paul is telling us to treat our enemies in a way that invites them to a good place, possibly even a place of repentance and faith. If we love someone the way Christ loves us, we're going to be willing to forgive. By giving an enemy something to eat or drink, we're not excusing their behavior. We're recognizing them, we're forgiving them, and loving them in spite of their sin, just as Christ did for us. Giving food and drink to people who would expect us to find happiness in their suffering is anything but a passive doormat response to evil. Instead, it's going on the offense, using acts of kindness as our response. Verse 20 is simply stating that acts of kindness may bring an enemy to a place of repentance. But even if our enemy doesn't repent, forgiving them serves to free us from any hint of bitterness. A Christian lady owned two prized chickens that got out of their run, and they 
busied themselves in the garden of an ill-tempered neighbor. The man caught the chickens. He wrung their necks and threw them back over the fence. Naturally, the woman was upset, but she didn't get angry and rush over and scream at him. Instead, she took the birds and prepared two chicken pot pies. Then she delivered them to the man who had killed her chickens. She also apologized for not being more careful about keeping her chickens in her own yard. Her children, expecting an angry confrontation, they hid behind a bush to see what the man would say or do, and what happened was he was speechless. Those chicken pot pies and an apology filled him with a sense of shame, and he had nothing but a guilty look as he accepted the gracious gift. But the mom wasn't trying to get even or make her neighbor feel guilty. Her motive in returning good for evil was to show her neighbor true, genuine, non-hypocritical Christian love. The two neighbors were potential lifelong enemies, but that adversarial relationship was avoided by an act of kindness. This was a heaping coals of fire moment. And brings us to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're overcome by evil when we retaliate and we pay we repay evil with evil the result is more sin more pain and an endless recycle an endless cycle if you will of revenge and hatred but god broke this endless cycle consider romans 5:10 even when we were god's enemies he made peace with us because his son died for us Jesus' death on the cross overcame evil with goodness. On one hand, the cross represents hatred in the heart of man toward God as it was the weapon of choice for the executioner. But on the other hand, it's where the greatest love of God toward man was demonstrated. It's there that the goodness of God leads us to repentance and salvation. It's there that the nails that were driven into the hands and feet of Jesus those nails drew forth the blood that saves. Christ's death on the cross is the ultimate response of overcoming evil with good. In our passage today, Paul has introduced us to a life of overcoming evil with good. It's a life that runs totally opposite our natural feelings and impulses. We are to respond a lot differently to enemies than the world would expect. We are to be sensitive to others. We're to walk humbly with believers and to as much as possible, as much as it depends on us, live peaceably with all. Instead of taking revenge, we need to overcome evil by doing good to those who harm us. This all happens with a renewed mind and a life that finds its identity in Jesus Christ. This is the message of Romans. It tells us how people can be made right with God through Christ and how his righteousness is lived out in real life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this passage of Scripture. It reminds us how you overcame the evil of sin with the goodness of your Son by his death on the cross. Father, may we find our identity in Christ and through the power of your Spirit, help us to overcome the evil of our enemies by resisting the proud and the natural response of wanting to get even. Rather, may we trust you for giving us the will and the power to obey as we, in your strength, overcome evil with good. And, Lord, we ask you to show us how to do that, Lord, as we live and walk and 
Now pray in Jesus' name. Amen.